will be an interesting seminar. Like I said, a hundred years ago, oh, the Home Rule Act was the was signed into law after after being passed three times, put back three times by the Lords. The Conservative and Unionist MPs walked out of Westminster in protest. As Irish and Liberal MPs cheered and sang "God Save the King," and there were there were bonfires. John Redmond returned to Ireland to give his famous Wooden Bridge speech, calling on calling for Irish recruitment to serve in the war, and the, and the act was immediately suspended for the duration. As a, people had different expectations of what all this meant and what the events of the, pre, of the previous August had meant. And as, I have a couple of extracts here before the House speakers go oh, on, oh, on, on from the letters between Shan Bullock and, the, and his patron, Sir Horace Plunkett, in, in August 1914. Several men told Mrs. Bullock that Redmond's speech made them weep. I've never seen such a revulsion of feeling resulting from spoken words. At the same time, I find that people of a unionist turn of mind imagine fondly that Ireland is now disposed of, home rule and all else cleared away in the storm of patriotism. Very tenderly, I try to show people that Irish patriotism, like patriotic like all patriotism has its price, and the price of Redmond's patriotic speech is home rule. As, as Plunkett says, that, 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 says that, the, that, the, that home rule has to be postponed because nobody can discuss the details at such a time. Um, um, on the other hand, the unionists must agree that the moment it is possible to take up the matter again, the nationalists must start the position they have won, namely have the right guarantees and to put the original bill in the statute book if such some amendment by consent cannot be agreed to. Ireland never had such an opportunity and given time would not allow her extremists to deprive her of it. And Bullock responds, I am sorry for Carson, who is, of course is now seen as the, as the obstructor. He is in a position that soon become impossible. If he were free, I am sure he would only be too glad to rally with the others, but Ulster forced him either to hold back or quit. Ulster is gradually losing all sympathy if she allows Redmond his following to put her in the position of rebels, even silent rebels, would be a calamity, and she might as well send in an ultimatum at once and join the Germans. Obviously no more can be done by any of us. Our storm in an eggshell has no meaning in this cataclysm of butchery, that's the First World War. And of course the cataclysm was to go on much longer than, longer than, well, than Bullock or Plunkett could have expected. And one of the many casualties of, this, of the war and revolution was to be the Home Rule Bill. So how significant was it? Was it just a phantasm or was it a stepping stone on in political progress? Our speakers here have different views on the subject. So we are, of our four speakers are each going to speak for half an hour. And there will be, after the first two speakers, there will be a coffee break, which will last for 15 minutes, and we hope to have half an hour for discussion at the end, and we hope it will be a lively discussion, and a collection will be taken up, up to defray the expenses of the seminar. Thank you very much, and I will hand you over to our first speaker, John Bruton. <clears throat> thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I thank the uh, a reform group for remembering this very important centenary in Irish history, the day on which Home Rule became law for the first time ever. Today, Scotland is going to the polls to decide if it wants independence. Whatever decision they make today, the Scots are exercising national self-determination. That came about 
because for the past number of years, Scotland has already had a Home Rule Government and a Home Rule Parliament. And a majority in that Parliament was won by a party, eventually, it was won by a party that wanted complete independence. And that could have happened in Ireland 90 or so years ago. The experience of Home Rule, of making their own laws in Scotland, of administering their own services and making their own policies, has given the Scots the confidence and the international credibility now to freely consider moving to full independence. All that has happened in Scotland without the loss of life, without the bitterness of war. Ireland was given a similar opportunity 100 years ago today to move through home rule towards even greater independence, gradually and peacefully, when home rule for Ireland became law on the 18th of September 1914. Ireland could have followed the same peaceful path towards independence that Scotland is considering taking today. We won that opportunity 100 years ago and won it by exclusively parliamentary means and without the loss of life. We chose, for various reasons which will be explored here today, not to follow that path. But the fact that we won the opportunity to take that path and won it by exclusively parliamentary methods should be celebrated by this parliamentary democracy 100 years later. Given that this is a parliamentary democracy, one of the oldest surviving ones in Europe, one that did not descend into totalitarianism during the 20th century, it is important that we should celebrate parliamentary achievements. Remembering democratic, non-violent achievements should be part of the civic education of this nation. The passage into law of the Home Rule was, as I have said, such an Irish parliamentary achievement, and indeed an achievement without equal in the preceding 200 years. It granted Ireland its own legislature, something denied it since 1800. It was of comparable importance to the Land Acts, also achieved by diligent parliamentary work and peaceful agitation by the same people. I welcome the fact that the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Charles Flanagan, will be delivering a speech later on today in Wooden Bridge on Home Rule, and I hope to be there. I commend the work that has been done by the government to draw attention to the introduction of the Home Rule Bill and its passage through various stages in Parliament and the contribution the government is making to the restoration of John Redmond's grave, long neglected in Wexford. Given that the Home Rule Act of 1914 provided Ireland with a right a right that had been denied it for the previous 114 years, the right to an Irish legislature meeting in Ireland, its centenary should be specially marked today in our legislature, in Doyle and Shannadairn, which is meeting today. I've been up in Leinster House just to check that it is. Um, the 1916 rebellion, the warfare of the 1919-1923 period that it engendered, and indeed the Great War as well, are all being commemorated, and commemorated quite visibly and eloquently. That's good. 
It is good to commemorate those who died in wars. But if these commemorations of those who died in wars are not to be accompanied by a balancing and equally high-profile commemoration of peaceful parliamentary achievements, like Home Rule, that would glorify military activity at the expense of the certainly less glamorous and frequently much more derided but contemporarily far more relevant peaceful parliamentary work which is going on this day as we speak less than 100 yards from here. As it is today, Ireland in 1914 was a divided society, an emotionally divided island with a majority, mainly, but not exclusively, of one religious tradition, favouring a large measure of independence, and another strong minority, mainly of another religious tradition, but not exclusively, partially concentrated in one part of the country, but not entirely, favouring continued full integration in the United Kingdom. It was a divided island, an emotionally divided society. In emotionally divided societies, I contend that it is vital that commemoration be used to learn useful contemporary lessons from history, not merely to celebrate retrospectively one protagonist or another in a past struggle, and certainly not to freshen up old divisions. The enactment of Home Rule may have been a purely peaceful parliamentary achievement, but this is not to suggest that those who obtained it, the Irish Parliamentary Party of John Redmond and John Dillon, were mild-mannered, non-confrontational and slightly weak figures, as some are inclined to portray them. Two previous attempts to obtain Home Rule had failed. Parnell had failed to obtain Home Rule. One, because it was defeated in the House of Commons, and the other because it was vetoed in the House of Lords. To get Home Rule onto the statute book, the Irish Parliamentary Party leaders had to get a majority for Home Rule in the House of Commons and simultaneously get British constitutional arrangements changed to remove the House of Lords' veto. And we've seen how difficult doing anything the House of Lords has proved to be in more recent times. There was a permanent majority against Home Rule in the House of Lords, and the veto could only be removed with the consent of the House of Lords itself. Furthermore, in the House of Commons, the Liberal Party, which had been committed to Home Rule under Gladstone, had moved away from that policy. Under his successor, Lords, Rhodes, Lords Rosebery, Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman, and Herbert Henry Asquith. So in order to secure Home Rule, by peaceful and constitutional methods, the Liberal Party had to be won back uh, to the firm commitment to it by its last leader, but three. In a masterly exercise of parliamentary leverage and constructive opportunism, Redmond and Dillon achieved both goals and achieved them in a short space of time. They withheld support from the 1909 budget unless and until there was a commitment to remove the House of Lords' veto and introduce Home Rule. They also, in effect, exercised pressure on the King because the Lords eventually only passed the legislation to remove its own veto in response from a threat to a threat from the King of swamping the House of Lords with what would effectively have been liberal peers. 
All this was achieved from a position of being a minority in party in the House of Commons, albeit a party whose votes were needed to avoid a general election, which the Liberal government feared they would lose. Considerable brinkmanship was needed, because if the Liberals lost the election, the cause of home rule would also be lost. Redmond and Dillon did not have all the Trump cards. They just played the, the cards they had very well. On the other side of the House, the Irish party faced a Conservative party that was so determined to force a general election that they were prepared to incite Ulster Unionists to military insurrection and to connive with elements in the British military to ensure that that insurrection would not be averted. In Britain itself, home rulers had to overcome deep anti-Irish and deep anti-Catholic sentiment in some sections of opinion, including within the Liberal Party, as Ronan Fanning has shown in his book, Fatal Path. Financial gaps also had to be bridged. Like Scot unlike Scotland today, Ireland in 1914 had no oil. Between 1896 and 1911, British government expenditure in Ireland, including recently introduced old age pensions, land purchase payments and the like, had increased by 91%, whereas revenue raised in Ireland, the revenue that would be available to the Home Rule Administration, had risen by only 28%. That enduring gap between the trends in revenue and the trends in expenditure explain why, in 1924, the Free State Government had to reduce the old age pension, or felt they had to do so. In face of all these difficulties, all those difficulties, getting home rule onto the statute book without the loss of a single life is a remarkable parliamentary achievement, and it happened 100 years ago today and should be remembered. If commemoration is about drawing relevant lessons for today's generation from the work of past generations, this remarkable exercise of parliamentary achievement to achieve radical reform against entrenched resistance has much greater relevance to today's generation of Democrats than does the blood sacrifice of Pierce or Connolly. The subsequent turning away after 1916 from constitutional methods has obscured um, the the, uh, has obscured, sorry, has obscured the scale of this parliamentary achievement, uh, and there may have there may have been fear, of course, subsequently, that too much mem remembering of this anniversary, the passage of Home Rule, might obscure or take out of the context that the people wanted to place it in of the 1916 rising. Perhaps that's why the 18th of September isn't a national holiday, which I think arguably to be. The Wooden Bridge speech of John Redmond on the 20th of September 1914, urging Irishmen to join the Allied cause in the Great War that had broken out six weeks previously, must be seen in the context that Home Rule had been placed on the statute book just two days previously. Home Rule was law, but the implementation of it was simply postponed until the end of what most people expected would be a short war. Redmond's address to the volunteers at Woodenbridge was not a mere reciprocation of the passage of Home Rule. He also wanted to show that the passage of Home Rule had inaugurated a new and better relationship between Ireland and its neighbouring island. He wanted to show everybody, including particularly Ulster Unionists, that things had changed. As he was still aiming to persuade Ulster Unionists to come in under Home Rule, he felt he needed to do this if there was to be any chance that they would 
voluntarily do so. He wanted to show Ulster Unionists that in the Wooden Bridges speech, in some matters, Unionists and Nationalists were now on the same side. Let us not forget that Irishmen had fought in the British Army in the Boer War, notwithstanding the fact that Redmond and his party had opposed that war. They'd fought in every war, indeed, in which Britain had been engaged throughout the 19th century. Uh, and so many, therefore, of those who volunteered to fight in the Great War would have done so anyway, regardless of what Redmond said at Wooden Bridge. But suppose Redmond had made a different speech at Wooden Bridge. Suppose, homing, home rule having been passed two days before, Redmond had, instead of saying what he said, vocally opposed recruitment. What would have happened then? He would have handed a powerful argument to those who had opposed home rule all along, namely that a Dublin home rule government could not be trusted not to undermine Britain's international position when Britain was under severe and immediate and possibly fatal threat. Carson and Craig, certainly, if he had said that, and their allies in the British Conservative Party would have felt themselves entirely vindicated in their opposition to home rule. The Wooden Bridge speech also stood on its own merits. The unprovoked invasion by Germany of a small, neutral country, Belgium, in order better to attack France, was something that many people at the time and since regarded as profoundly wrong and deserving to be opposed. That said, the Great War was an avoidable tragedy and a failure of statesmanship. But it was not a failure for which John Redmond or the Irish Parliamentary Party were responsible. They had to deal with the situation as it was presented to them. It is right to commemorate the, great, the dead of the Great War. But Home Rule's passage into law is a separate matter. It should be commemorated on its own merits and separately. It is not a mere addendum to the remembrance of the Great War, but a unique parliamentary achievement. Parnell did not get Home Rule onto the statute book. Redmond and Dillon did 100 years ago today. O'Connell did not succeed in re-establishing by law an Irish legislature. A hundred years ago today, John Redmond and John Dillon did. Some have criticised the limitations of the Home Rule Act of 1914. These limitations can be explained by the fact that although the possibility of temporary exclusion for some Ulster counties had been conceded and amending legislation to, that, to provide for that was, had been drafted, the Act had been framed from the outset in terms that would apply to all 32 counties. So as a result of that, safeguards and understandable limitations in the powers immediately being devolved to the Home Rule Parliament were understandable. After all, power was being devolved, potentially, to a 32-county Parliament where there was a substantial Catholic majority and a substantial Protestant minority. And safeguards or limitations to the Home Rule Bill that wouldn't have applied if it applied only to, 32, to 26 counties were therefore to be expected. For example, a provision was inserted whereby the Home Rule government could not endow any religion. This safeguard was actually a worry to the Catholic hierarchy, to Cardinal Logue in particular, who feared it might affect existing state funding for Catholic teacher training colleges. For a similar reason, marriage law was to be kept at Westminster rather than devolved to the Home Rule Administration because 
the Vatican's natemary decree of 1907 on mixed marriage marriages had caused alarm among Protestants, and there was a celebrated case known as the McCann case, which brought this into high relief. Likewise, limitations on the imposition of tariffs and duties by the Home Rule Administration for a 32-county Ireland were needed to reassure the large industrial sector in Ulster that their industrial interests would not be sacrificed to the needs of the predominantly agricultural interests that dominated the rest of the country. These were all understandable. As it transpired, these safeguards were not enough. Ulster Unionists considered to, continued to insist on exclusion from the whole system and backed their demand by the threat of force. They were encouraged in this, as I said, by the Conservative opposition. If John Redmond had wanted to maximise the powers of the Home Rule government in Dublin, he could have done so. He could have, early on, have accepted the exclusion from Home Rule of Ulster counties where there was a unionist majority. That is what the Irish state subsequently did in practice anyway. Even the Conservatives would have given Redmond such a deal. Under such a deal, the exclusion might, however, have been limited to only four counties instead of six, as had to be accepted in 1921. But Redmond was unwilling to accept the, any open-ended exclusion from Home Rule of any part of Ireland. In that sense, John Redmond was more idealistic than the Republicans and physical force men who came after him. In January 1914, at the height of Ulster resistance to Home Rule, John Redmond was speaking at a meeting to his, of his constituents in Waterford about the difficulty of winning over under Ulster Unionists. And a heckler shouted up at him, we're as well off without them. I can't imitate the Ballybrickan accent perfectly, as you can see. Redmond replied indignantly, no, we are not. That's an absolute fallacy. The American historian John Joseph P. Finn, in his book, John Redmond and Irish Unity, 1912 to 1918, said that Redmond prized Irish unity more than he prized Irish sovereignty. He added, although he, Redmond, acceded to demands for temporary exclusion of northern counties, he never gave them up for lost. The Irish revolutionaries who negotiated the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921 did, that, did just that. Even the anti-treaty forces led by de Valera based their objections on the loss of the Republican ideal, not on the loss of the northern nationalist population. The Cork-based supporter of the Irish party, J.J. Horgan, said much the same thing in, 19, in his 1949 memoir, Parnell to Pierce. His book concludes with these words. We constitutionalists have been wisely had been wisely prepared to make large concessions in order to avoid the division of our country, which we believed to be the final and intolerable wrong. The price of our successors' triumph was partition. They sacrificed Irish unity for Irish sovereignty. A sovereign 32-county state was not achieved in 1921, but the freedom to achieve freedom for 26 counties, no more than was available to Redmond between 1912 and 1914. Those who came after Redmond, using the gun, did not bring unity any closer than he did. Perhaps the two communities on this island are too different in their sense of their deepest identity for this. But those who criticize the limitations of the Home Rule Bill should, I think, reflect on what Redmond was trying to achieve, Irish unity. Charles Townsend put his, this way in his book, Easter 1916. The rebellion played a part 
in, part, in semantic partition. Indeed, the words of the proclamation issued at the GPO were literally oblivious to the problem of resistance in parts of Ulster to any form of rule from Dublin. Notwithstanding Pierce's professed admiration for the UVF army itself to resist even a moderate measure of home rule. The 1916 proclamation said it was oblivious of the differences carefully fostered by an alien government who have divided a minority from a majority in the past. That's what the proclamation said. In effect, those who wrote the proclamation did not think the Ulster Unionists had minds of their own, but were simply tools of the British. Apart from rhetoric, no attempt was made to persuade them of the merits of an Irish Republican, nor thought given to how such persuasion might be done. Whereas Redmond had tried to talk to Carson and Craig, the 1916 leaders were oblivious of them. When the decision to use physical force was made by the leaders of the IRB and the Irish Citizen Army in April 1916, home rule was already law. Its implementation was simply postponed for the duration of war. But there was no doubt that it could come into effect once the war was over, either for the whole of Ireland or, more likely, for 26 or 28 counties. The irreversibility of home rule, once passed, is well illustrated by a comment that had been made in one of the, by one of its staunchest opponents, the Conservative leader Andrew Boner Law. He had admitted, and I quote, if Ulster, or rather any country, any, sorry, if Ulster, or rather any county, had the right to remain outside the Irish Parliament, for my part, my objection would be met. Andrew Boner Law. This comment shows that Home Rule could easily have come, have led to an, ev an even larger measure of independence for the rest of Ireland, so long as some Ulster counties were allowed to opt out of it. As to the irreversibility of Home Rule, the Lloyd George Coalition Government's re-election manifesto in the December 1918 election said bluntly, Home Rule is on the statute book. There was thus no going back on Home Rule as far as the Conservative and Liberal politicians who wrote that manifesto for the December election of 1918 were concerned. My belief is that at the time, instead of launching a policy of abstention from Parliament and guerrilla war, Sinn Féin and the IRA should have used the Home Rule Act as a peaceful stepping stone to dominion status and full independence in the same way as the Treaty of 1921 was so used, but only after so much blood had been shed. They might not have got more than 28 counties, but there would have been no bloodshed. Many of the 1916 leaders were familiar with Catholic teaching on what constitutes a just war. One of the criteria for such a war is that it be a last resort. Another is that it should have a reasonable chance of success. The fact that home rule was already passed and on the statute book would have, and would have come into effect after the Great War and would have been a platform for further moves to greater independence shows that the use of violence in 1916 was not a genuine last resort. There were other resorts available and therefore does not meet the criteria for a just war. Moreover, the 1916 leaders themselves accepted that they had no chance of military success when they marched out in Easter, in Easter 
1916. Another important context in which the 1916 decision must be judged is the Great War, which was then in progress, in which thousands of Irish soldiers were fighting on the Allied side when the GPO and other strong points in Dublin. I'm afraid I won't make five minutes. Sorry, I, will, I, I, I won't manage that, I'm sorry. I, I apologise to the other speakers, but uh, this has taken quite a bit of preparation. I'm not going to manage the five minutes. Um, I didn't know that it was just that thing when I was preparing this. Um, the, the 1916 leaders explicitly took the opposite side in this war to the fellow Irishmen in the trenches. In proclaiming the Republic, the 1916 leaders spoke of their gallant allies in Europe. These allies were the German Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Although the immediate target with Britain, was Britain, those against whom the Irish Republicans went to war included Belgium and the French Republic, whose territory had been preemptively invaded and occupied by force by Germany. The 1916 leaders were not neutral. They were on the side of Germany, Turkey, and Austro-Hungary, and said so in their proclamation. This greatly weakened the position of Irish negotiators, including Sean T. O'Kelly, who sought to get a hearing at the 1919 peace conference in Paris for the case for Irish independence. The 1916 leaders' decision had put them literally on the wrong side and had made them allies, in the words of the proclamation, of the losers in the Great War. This was complicated by the fact that the Irish Republic had been declared anyway, regardless of the peace conference. The Irish delegation was not making a claim. It was looking for a retrospective vindication of its declaration of a republic. As Townsend put it in his other book, The Republic, The Fight for Irish Independence, the peace conference would now be asked not to investigate and adjudicate on a national claim, but to recognize an already existing republic set up in an act that was hostile to one of the great powers sitting at the conference. This would have been hard for Woodrow Wilson to do, even if he wanted to. The fact that a republic had been declared anyway in 1916 and again in 1919 made winning support for any compromise short of a full republic of 32 counties much more difficult, as the treaty negotiators were to find. It would have been wiser to have had patience, avoided violence, and adhered to the Home Rule policy and to constitutional methods. I concede that I don't believe that the Home Rule policy would have, united, have led, in my view, to a united 32-county Ireland in the medium or perhaps the long term. The opposition to it was too great in Ulster. The leader of the Irish party said in the House of Commons, no coercion shall be applied to any single county in Ireland to force them against their will to come in under the Irish government. That was a sensible policy because, as we've seen, Irish attempts to coerce Northern Ireland into a united Ireland, whether by the attempted incursions across the border in 1922, the border campaign in 1956, the IRA campaign in 1968-1998, all failed miserably because they were based on a faulty analysis. Likewise, attempts to persuade the British to force the Unionists into a united Ireland also failed because that was never going to happen. Uh, and was asking other people to do our business for us, essentially. But under the Home Rule arrangement, if Ulster counties opted out, there would have been continued direct rule from Westminster of those rules, of those, of those counties, those Ulster counties. There would have been no storm in Parliament, no Protestant Parliament for a, for a Protestant people, no B-specials, no gerrymandering of local government. 
Stormont was not part of the Home Rule administration, uh, of the Home Rule arrangements, and it came about largely because of the abstention of Sinn Féin from uh, Parliament after the December election of 1918 uh, and the failure of the Irish uh, uh, Convention. Uh, so, as a result of that abstention, there was no nationalist voice in the House of Commons to object to anything that might happen in Ulster. There was no protection for the nationalist minority in any county that might have been excluded from Home Rule uh, because they were simply not there to protect them. The constitutional Home Rule po policy would have been much better for Northern nationalists than the policy of violent separatism and was to, uh, was to prove to be. Northern nationalists probably sensed this. While the rest of Ireland was plumping for Sinn Féin in the election of December 1918, the electors of West Belfast returned Joe Devlin in preference to Eamon de Valera. The Home Rule path would also have been better because it would have saved many lives throughout Ireland. Uh, I believe living for Ireland is better than dying for Ireland, if you can manage it. And I think too many people died. Too many people died. 256 Irish civilians died during the 1916 Rising, some at the hands of rebels and probably the majority as a result of British artillery fire designed to expel uh, the rebels from positions they had occupied. These civilians who died did not have any say in the IRB decision to go to war. All would have lived if the action had not take, take, taken place. They did not volunteer for the sacrifice they made. We know the names, and they are rightly remembered, of those who died in the, in the, in the volunteers. Uh, each year, the Irish Army says a mass, has a mass said for those who died for Ireland in 1916. It's unclear to me whether this formula includes the civilians who did not decide to put their lives at risk for Ireland, but who were killed anyway because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. 153 soldiers... In, the U in UK Army uniforms were killed in the fighting in Dublin in 1916. Of these, 52 of the dead were Irish. These are the names of some of the Irish soldiers, many home from leave, on leave from the trenches, who were killed in Dublin in 1916. Gerald Needham from Roscon, County Roscon. Francis Brennan from Usher's Island, in Dublin, not far from here. Abraham Watchorn from Rathvilly, County Carlow. I think one of his family is on the Rathvilly, successful Rathvilly football team at the moment. John Brennan from Gowran, County Kilkenny. John Flynn from Carrick and Shore, and many more. All died in British, in army uniforms, I'm corrected, army uniforms in 1916. I hope those dead will also be remembered in 2016. Three members of the unarmed Dublin Met Metropolitan Police were killed, and 14 members of the RIC, including Patrick Lean from Abbey Field and Patrick Brosnan from Dunmanway. These Irish men were acting on the orders of a duly constituted government elected by Parliament, which already had granted home rule to Ireland and to which Ireland had democratically elected its own MPs. Did not these men die for Ireland too? How should they and their sacrifice be remembered in 2016? Consider also the dead of the War of Independence and the dead of the Irish Civil War. And these deaths flowed in some measure 
from the initial decision to use force in 1916 and not to wait for home rule. 1,200 people were killed between 1919 and 1921, many civilians, many of them people who joined to be civilian policemen. In response, if in, re in response to the appeal for blood sacrifice of the 19 in 1916 and the executions and the gross mishandling of conscription by the British government in 1918, the Home Rule had been allowed to take place, none of those people would have died. These were talented people whose lives would have been better lived for Ireland. Around 4,000 people died in the Civil War. And I think there is a link here. Violence breeds violence. Sacrifice breeds intransigence. The dead exert an unhealthy power over the living, persuading sometimes the living to hold out for the impossible, lest the sacrifice of the dead be perceived to have been in vain. In that sense, the policy of violence initiated in 1916 contributed to the Civil War, and it did so in this way. The earlier deaths of those who occupied the General Post Office in 1916, seeking to achieve and declaring a 32-county republic, made it much harder for those on the anti-treaty side who occupied the four courts in 1922 to accept anything less than the 32-county republic that had been declared a little earlier in the GPO. They did not want to appear to betray the dead by accepting any compromise. Unfortunate, but understandable. Betrayal of the sacrifices of the dead is one of the most emotionally powerful and destructive accusations within the canon of romantic nationalism. It exercised a baleful influence in recent times in delaying the abandonment by the IRA of its failed and futile campaign to bomb and coerce unionists into United Ireland. I believe Ireland would have reached the position it is in today, an independent nation of 26 or perhaps 28 counties if it had stuck with the Home Rule policy. Like all counterfactual arguments, this proposition is impossible to prove. But once the Ulster question had been resolved by some form of exclusion of areas with the Unionist majority, the path to greater independence by peaceful means was wide open. The policy of the Irish party in the 1918 election was dominion status, and I believe that would, they would have achieved it. And it was also the policy of the Asquith Liberals and the Labour Party in the 1918 election. And there would have been a majority for dominion status for Ireland quite soon in the House of Commons. Certainly, many parties in the Home Rule Parliament would have been demanding greater independence. Redmond's party probably would have won a majority in the first Home Rule Parliament, just as Scottish Labour got a majority in the first Scottish Home Rule Parliament. But it is not unlikely that Sinn Féin or Labour would have gained a majority, and a majority for greater or full independence, in a subsequent Home Rule Parliament, just as the Scottish Nationalists did so in Scotland, thereby laying the ground, rule, the ground for the referendum that's taking today, place today. Some might argue that military and security considerations would have made the granting of greater independence to Ireland impossible or unlikely. But if a Conservative-dominated government was willing in 1938 to hand over the treaty ports to Eamon de Valera, who 22 years previously had been a declared ally of Germany in 1916, it would surely have been willing to place as much trust in a Home Rule government in Dublin 
whose political antecedents had stood with Britain at its moment of greatest threat. To say that the rising may have been a mistake, that its leaders made a mistake, is not to deny the heroism or the sacrifice of those who died. And they should be remembered and will be remembered and are being remembered. But it is also important to remember the work of those who lived and achieved for Ireland by exclusively parliamentary methods. And as a former parliamentarian, I'm proud to assert that proposition. <laughs>